Hello, goblins and ghouls, and welcome to my Haunted Life podcast. I'm your host, Angela Hartshorn, and today we are talking about one fiery ghost story. Also, trigger warning for this one. We have seamstresses, drugs, and vibrators, and someone literally going down in flames. Good morning, goblins and ghouls. How is everyone doing today? I hope your day is treating you well because you deserve it. It is a lovely nine degrees here and snowing like all get out. Basically, everything is shut down, so it's a perfect day for a podcast day. And I'm not going anywhere, so works out really well. Podcat Lily is very happy I am home and has taken over my regular desk chair, all curled up in a blanket. So, she's she's helping, man. She's on her duties. In honor of the snow, instead of tea, I'm drinking hot chocolate. In particular, Krampus Hot Cocoa by Occult Herbs and Tonics. Shout out to my girl, Carolyn. This is an unpaid advertisement, I guess, technically. But she's not paying me to say this, I swear. This stuff is amazing, you guys. And I freaking love the little goth sprinkles. They just kill me. You can get yourself some on my website, heartandhornstore.com, or go directly to Carolyn's at occultherbsandtonics.com. Don't worry, I'll post pictures of the whole setup today and... The little pot cat, Lily. Quick bit of housekeeping. Usually I turn off the heater when I'm recording. <coughs> Sorry. Sprinkle. But I feel like today is just too damn cold to do that. So you might hear it in the background. Like now. Uh, same with the snow plows and trucks going up and down. I'm hoping to beat our snow removal guys that actually come up our driveway, so we'll see what happens. We all know I'm not great at the editing thing, so yeah, you'll probably hear those. I'm still trying to figure out what is going on with the domain and Spotify issues with the podcast transfer. So hopefully I'll have good news on that soon hopefully otherwise i'm definitely enjoying the new podcast hosting site i have all these new statistics to look at and apparently i have a couple of listeners in canada and india so that's pretty cool so hello if that's you guys on this week's episode i'm taking you to one of our favorite places in portland Kell's Irish Restaurant and Pub. Just a heads up, if you look this place up, there is a Seattle one, which is apparently more haunted. So, it was very confusing for research. When Portland Oddities and Curiosities Expo rolls around in the fall, you will find us there at least one of the nights we are in town. We love the food, drinks, and atmosphere, 
The ghosts are honestly just a bonus. There's the plow tracks. Uh, this place is connected to the Shanghai tunnels, so you know it's spiritually busy. But the best known thing, or the best known ghost, has nothing to do with the tunnels and might actually have nothing to do with Kells at all. It's a little bit of a mystery. So, let's get into it, shall we? Grab yourself a cup of tea or hot chocolate, in my case. Make sure the doors are locked and the sage is close by. I have a story to tell you. Kell's Irish restaurant and pub has had a long reputation of being one of the most haunted places in Portland. Kell's is absolutely gorgeous classic Irish pub with high ceilings, dark wood, great food, and amazing freaking whiskey. The front of the building is white with these tall windows. It stands out from everything around it. It could be because it's an older building and it's actually shorter than everything around it. But you understand. And it's white. Stands out real good. Also, the front of the building is cast iron, which is weird. Like our ghost tour lady made us knock on it. And yeah, it's, it's metal, which is apparently a thing in some of the old Portland buildings. This place is just awesome. There's always live music, usually old traditional Irish songs. It's all very on brand. There was one time we were there that the musician that night actually sang a couple songs in Gaelic, which I thought was awesome. My little Irish heart was so excited. One of the most unique parts of this place is that it has a cigar room in the basement. This has been grandfathered in when the no smoking inside laws passed in Portland. So it's not gonna change anytime soon. It's dark, it's smoky, it, it has almost as many cigars as there are whiskeys. That might not be true, but there's a lot of whiskeys. And technically a lot more cigars than I knew existed. It has red Victorian looking lamps everywhere. So it kind of has this opium den vibe, which is ironic because it is believed to have been an opium den before it became a cigar room. So that works out really well. One of the other very unique characteristics about this room is that it directly is connected to the Shanghai tunnels. So of course this place is haunted. Employees report feeling someone brushing past them, chairs being rearranged, and televisions being turned on when no one is around. The owner even claims to have seen a face appearing in the mirror. In addition, many report televisions that mysteriously turn on by themselves and an ominous black cloud that moves from room to room. A piano downstairs has been known to play by itself and customers have reported hearing the sound of heavy breathing when no one else is around. After 
doing the research, I realized I might have had a couple of experiences myself at Kells, which is funny. I'll tell you all about it after I tell you about the most famous resident ghost and discuss how he could possibly be there. So, like I said, one of our favorite places in Portland is Kell's Irish Pub. When I let the husband pick where we are eating, it's always an Irish pub. So I wanted to take him out to dinner to thank him for helping me with the expo that day. And I had looked up Irish bars and discovered Kells. When I saw they had a cigar room, I was sold. We made sure to plan to go after the show. The day before the show is always set up and then either finishing time or tour time, depending on what we have time for. And we had time to do a ghost tour that time. I was so excited when our tour guide stopped outside of Kells and started telling us about the hauntings, because I didn't know it was haunted when I picked it. According to her, the building has almost always been a bar. The upstairs was a brothel, and what was the cigar room was an opium den connected to the Shanghai tunnels. Quick sidebar, and this might be one of my favorite favorite things about Portland and Seattle history. In the late 1800s, when women saw an opportunity to make money off of all the men flocking west, it was in sex work. And a lot of it. So much sex work. But in all the censuses, censuses, they are never labeled as sex workers, prostitutes, lady of the evenings, whores, nothing like that. They were always labeled as seamstresses. Seamstresses. <laughs> I freaking love it. Especially since I did that for a very long time. So it's like my new favorite fact. Anyway, she told us of the legend of Chief David Campbell a firefighter that died in the building in the line of duty and now haunts the building. She then stopped the story and said that if you actually research the chief, he died in an explosion on the other side of town. She then questioned the group that if he died on the other side of town, why would he be haunting here? Of course, the answer is... He must have been connected to the place, and since he had been frequently seen in the cigar room, he must have been a big fan of opium. Uh, this is not unreasonable, considering the era. When I started researching this episode, I was really surprised to see just how important and how much information there was about Chief David Campbell. He's kind of a big deal. Notice I said big deal. He still is in Portland. I found this wonderful article on PortlandOregon.gov page about the history of the fire department at the time. I don't think I could describe what it was like better, so I'm just going to read you the paragraph. No longer known as red shirts, firefighters in 1906 
wore turnouts and wore mustaches to put in their mouths to help block out the smoke. These smoke eaters lived together, ate together, played cards, pool, and joined the engine house polka bands. That year, David Campbell was ununanimously elected president of the Pacific Coast Fire Chiefs Association. Meanwhile, the amount of fire damage in dollars increased every year. Chief Campbell, eager to put emerging technology to use, christened the first fireboat. He upgraded cisterns and hydrants and consolidated the alarm system. Automobiles were all the rage. The city ordered two American La France chemical and hose engines capable of traveling 45 miles per hour. So it was pretty damn important. He sadly died a hero trying to get his men out of a building before it exploded. And he was the first firefighter killed in the line of duty in Portland. I found a snippet about that on the davidcampbellmemorial.org website. Maybe a little bit of a trigger warning? Heads up. On June 26, 1911, an alarm came in from the East Salmon and Water Street Shortly after 7.45 a.m., an oil pump at the Union Oil Distributing Plant had thrown a spark, igniting gas, accumulated in its motor pit. As he got into his automobile, Chief Campbell knew the fire would be hot. One of the first at the scene, he began directing arriving engine companies. At 8.30, every fire company in the city was in the line, an incredible jumble of men, machines, and horses, slipping in inches of water as they tried to position themselves. Realizing that the fire was out of control and his men inside the building were in peril, Campbell borrowed a turnout coat from one of his men and disappeared into the building. At 8.39, there was an ominous rumble from the basement as accumulated gases approached their flashpoint. The explosion hurtled bodies across the street. Tank heads flew 200 feet in the air. The north wall was tossed across the street and the roof rose into the air, then fell back to the ground. Campbell was last seen silhouetted against the flames, holding up his arms to brace against the falling roof. By 10.15 a.m., when the fire was brought under control, word had passed from engine company to engine company that Chief Campbell had gone into the building before the explosion and had not come out. A body was found huddled in the building, but it was not immediately known if it was Campbell or another firefighter. The connection between the borrowed coat and Chief Campbell's body was finally made, making clear the sacrifice he made for his crews. His funeral was the highest attended funeral at the time, 
with an estimated 150,000 attending and lining the streets. The David Campbell Memorial Association was set up shortly after his death, and its job is to remember David Campbell and other Portland firefighters lost in the line of duty. It's presided over by different fire chiefs, and there's a huge memorial set up in town, which I'm definitely going to the next time I'm out there. Now that we have established that he was a real man and he did not die in the cigar room, why is he there? Remember, our ghost tour lady said that he was partaking of opium and possibly getting his pants seamed because, you know, seamstresses. Hopefully you understand where I'm going with that. If not, I'm not explaining it. But I couldn't find anything about this anywhere other than in reviews from all of the different Portland ghost tour descriptions and reviews, which I thought was kind of interesting. Would these places be advertised as brothels and opiums? Dens? Probably not, let's be honest. That was, that was still on the down low. But I couldn't find anything stating the legend of it outside of the ghost tour sites. I thought that was very interesting. The Gilson building, where Kells is housed, was built in 1889 and named after Dr. Rodney L. Gilson, who Gleason, I think it's Gleason. I looked this up and now I don't remember. Who was a prominent physician in the army and the frontier and specialized in obstetrics and diseases of women. So basically an early gynecologist. He found his offices upstairs, founded his offices upstairs on the second floor of the building. My mind goes, of course, to the clinical illness of hysteria, which was treated by orgasms. The invention of the vibrator for this purpose happened in the early 1800s, so it's definitely possible, and I'm really hoping that's the case. But nothing specific. Just female issues is basically how it's always put. That being said, he died on June in June of 1890, so his practice wasn't around for long. Originally, the main floor hosted a creamery, like ice cream place. It also served as a location for Chown Electric Supply Company in the 1960s. The building is a City of Portland historical landmark within the Portland's Gidmore slash Old Town Historic District, which was declared a National Historic Landmark in 1977 for its historic importance as a major 19th century West Coast port and for its collection of cast iron commercial architecture. Now, information on the building is kind of hard to find, other than this, it is apparently up for sale 
And most of the articles you can find are about that right now. And like this little history I've pieced together from the listing ones because that's like all there is. At this time, too, opium was actually kind of going out of style. The heyday for it in Oregon was between 1890 and 1893. Of course, it was around longer before that and then after that. But that was like the highest amount coming through. I found this wonderful article on the Offbeat Oregon by Finn J.D. John about opium in Portland, stating, Opium poured into the city with such an astonishing rate that even the newspaper reported started wondering what was going on. The strangest thing is what becomes of all the opium that was brought into this country, remarked the Morning Oregon, Oregonian, in 1893, the number of Chinese here is growing smaller and only a small portion of them use the drug and a little of it goes a long way. The question is, what becomes of it? It turned out that at the time, Portland was basically supplying the West Coast with smoking opium with the help of the smuggling ring that probably included James Lowton, the top U.S. customs official in the port of Portland, who happened to also be a member of the Arlington Club, a personal friend of the Oregonian's publisher and the head of the Oregon Republican Party. Quick sidebar, the Oregonian's publisher Remember from last week's episode? <laughs> was Henry Piddick. Now, all I can picture is Henry and Georgiana with opium pipes in the Rose Garden. And I'm done. And I love them even more. Anyway, the article continues. That all unraveled in late 1893 in a spectacular trial in which 15 people, including some highly respected members of the Portland establishment, were indicted on smuggling charges. The case dragged on for several years through a series of appeals before being dropped as it became increasingly clear that the government's star witness smuggling kingpin Nat Blum was an easy and imaginative liar and was completely untrustworthy. The article ends with smuggling continued in the Portland area, but by the end of the century, opium smoking was fading out anyway. Locals of all nationalities by then had had 25 years in which to observe what happened to opium fiends and what they saw was not pretty or romantic or charming in any way. As would happen a hundred years later with the methamphetamine craze, the 
Drugs dark allure couldn't compete with the ugly, squalid reality people saw in its victims. And by the time the federal government got around to outline the drug in 1909, the shadow opium cast in Portland was a fraction of what it had once been. David Campbell didn't come to Portland until 1878 when he was 14 years old. In 1892, Campbell re-entered the department as a member of Engine Company Number 1. I'm not sure where he was in that time. And was appointed as foreman. In 1895, Campbell was appointed. What was that noise? I don't know. In 1895, Campbell was appointed fire chief by Mayor Frank, and after serving 15 months, he was replaced by order of Mayor Penor. He was again installed as chief by Mayor Mason in 1898, a position he filled until his untimely and tragic death. So, he was in his mid-twenties when opium got really popular? It's definitely possible, and there's probably wouldn't be any record of anything if he was, unless a family diary or something was found, if family knew. And there could have been an opium den in the Glisson building. It was very close to Chinatown, if not actually part of it. I'm not 100% sure where the boundaries actually are. It's just kind of like, you know, an area. The area remained rough for a long time. I found an article about a trial from 1922 about three men that were arrested for selling opium, smuggling in alcohol, human trafficking, and conducting a disorderly house, quote unquote. Remember, I kind of told you before that a disorderly house is probably... A brothel. And I also thought it was interesting that they used the term human trafficking in 1922. This happened not far from Kells. Let's not forget that there is still evidence in the cigar room that is now connected to the Shanghai tunnels. If you go down into the cigar room and look it's like the wine cellar that goes off. It it looks like a tunnel <laughs> and more tunnel than rest of the Shanghai tunnels. And it is rough and still like bare dirt and beams. And they say that is the connection to the tunnels. I doubt the Shanghaiers were stopping off for a bit of ice cream after a hard day of kidnapping people. If anyone has any documentation, please, please, please let me know. I would absolutely love to see it. I would still continue to refer to the cigar room as an opium den though. 
everybody is very convinced of that in Portland. And I, I just love that. So, is David Campbell actually haunting Kells? I feel like it's very easy to dismiss that he haunts the cigar room at Kells since he didn't die there. But here's the thing. He was very, very well known at his time and people would recognize his face. There are a surprising amount of pictures of this guy for the time. And it would be easy to identify him. People aren't saying they are seeing just an old firefighter down there. They specifically say it's him every time. And he is a very distinguished looking gentleman with one hell of a jawline. So I definitely think it's a possibility. But in all honesty, I could not tell you why he is there. But it's pretty well documented. Sometimes the apparition of a firefighter is seen with a cigar. So maybe he's just there doing what the rest of us are doing. Just enjoying ourselves. He hasn't forgotten about his fellow fighter fighters. He is said to appear in full firefighter gear. I assume from the turn of the century. And is most often seen by those who have some sort of connection to firefighters. Now, I personally do not have any connections to firefighters directly. But I remembered while doing the research here that I might just have had a couple of experiences at Kells. One of those things when you do the research and you kind of like, it jogs your memory. The first time we went to Kells, it was so busy and loud upstairs. I don't think I would have picked up on anything. When we went downstairs, it was much quieter and we could relax, but you definitely felt like you were being watched. I swore I saw a shadow person on the back stairs, leading back upstairs toward the back of the bar. I kind of played it off as a trick of the light. The second time we went, however, I saw something again. It was much quieter, and I think later in the evening, far less people. My husband had gone to the bathroom, and I was waiting for him outside the bathrooms. I was still inside the building. I was looking toward the bathrooms and again saw something. This time, it looked like the back of a leg, like the back of a calf, stepping away as it disappeared around the corner. Just classic black shadow. I couldn't see the corner of the wall through it. It was... It was weird. I immediately checked and no one was there. I did find out that the hallway where we were leads to the back stairs where I saw something the year before. So that's weird. I had a couple more experiences in the cigar room on our second visit, which I kind of explained away, 
until I started doing the research. Now, the cigar room is not the biggest space. It's rather tight and very intimate. When we were enjoying our cigar and whiskey, I felt something basically push past the little pew I was seated, sitting in. The pews aren't screwed down into the ground or anything. And it's like a stone f floor. so And it's like uh, cobblestone almost, but like big stones. And they move all over the stone floor. They just like slide. I immediately grabbed at my coat and purse without even thinking since I figured they were probably hanging over the edge and were in the way and they just caught somebody on the way pass. But they weren't. They were tucked out of the way next to me. And of course, no one was there. So that was weird. And then I also had heavy breathing. I heard it, but it was also like breathing on me. Like you could feel the breath on my cheek, if that makes sense. It, it was weird. This, it was, it was very strange. And to be honest, I have this happen in my own shop sometimes, especially later in the evening. So, it, I'm pretty used to it, but it's always on the back of my neck there, which is not cool. But, so I know what that feeling is. This time, it was on my left cheek. In Kells, it was on my left cheek. You could even see my hair move. Now, of course, that happened when I was alone. I think my husband was ordering us drinks. So, another weird personal experience that I have no one <laughs> to um, collaborate with me on. So that's, you know, I really need to get the husband better at this, I swear. Quick sidebar, and this is important. When we walked in that first night to Kells, it was so crowded, all the tables were taken up. We almost turned around and left. A very lovely elderly gentleman beckoned us to sit with him and we ended up talking to him all freaking night. His name is Doug. He's there almost every night apparently. Like he's been there forever. He knows everybody. Everybody knows him. That sort of thing. Total classic regular. If you go to Kells, do me a favor. If he's there, buy him a drink. Tell him it's from the weirdos in Colorado. He'll probably have no idea what you're talking about, but that's okay. That's not the point. He's an amazing gentleman. We ran into him this last year as well, and drinks were again bought. It's a tradition now. Oh, and don't forget to ask about the magic trick at the bar. Thank you to everyone out there listening today. My Haunted Life podcast is written, researched, produced, edited, and hosted by me, Angela Hertjord. If you're interested in more pictures and info and sources on this week's episode, 
check out the website. Hopefully I'll have it all updated. We'll see what happens. I've been putting at least the sources in the show notes. And pictures and info have been going on Patreon. So definitely make sure to check those out. Most of the information posted is, you don't, it's just open to the public. But if you want to support the show, it's, you can do so for as little as $2 a month. So I hope you like it. It would be cool. Um, you can find all the information. Do, 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 do. I lost my spot. Um, if you want to tell me a ghost story or have information about today's episode, like documentation that there was actually an opium den, like I asked about, you can email me at myhauntedlifepodcast at gmail.com, or you can write me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all at myhauntedlifepodcast. While you're there, please like and follow and comment. It honestly makes my day. And make sure to tell your friends and family about it. Word goes a long way. Uh, Music is by Ghost Stories Incorporated. And that's it for this show. I'll see you all next week on My Haunted Life Podcast. And until then, stay spooky. Thank you.